All right, so the Gospel of Mark. I'm not fully set up here. Let's see. Um, let's start off by doing a, a little bit of review and talking about where we've been coming up to this point. Mark has introduced several foundational topics up until this point, just several verses into the, the chapter, several verses into the book. And I want to make sure that we have a, a firm grasp on these different topics and that we're, we don't have any uh, misunderstandings or questions about them. So, so far we've been over the gospel and repentance, baptism, temptation. Again, these very broad overarching uh, topics. And we've discussed several things about them, at least in part. But again, these are, are deep issues. So uh, any, any questions, any uncertainties about uh, any of the things that we've covered so far along the gospel, repentance, baptism, temptation. Do we have a, a decent grasp on those foundational issues that Mark's introduced so far? Any comments on any of those things? All right. What is repentance? Anybody want to throw that out there? What repentance is? How we can succinctly summarize that? Basically a change of mind. Yep. Good. A change of mind. Not equivalent with um, a, a cessation of sin, right? A lot of people will say that. That to repent means to stop sinning. Uh, we can't, can't embrace that definition for sure. All right. We've also introduced some theological terms that are touched on in these verses. Um, the Trinity, impeccability. We talked about that last week. That's the, the teaching that Jesus, being God, he is unable to sin. Um, and then the hypostatic union, uh, another big theological term. Anybody remember what that means? What is a, the hypostatic union? That's like um, both of Jesus' nature is like as man and also his deity in one, basically. Good. Perfect. And Jesus is one person, right? But he has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. He is truly human and truly God. Not some kind of hybrid, not some kind of mix. Uh, truly human, truly God. The two natures of the one person of, of Jesus. And the Trinity, remember, is three persons and one being of God. So those are, again, um, some, some big theological words. We don't necessarily need to know the words, but the, the theology behind them is central to Christianity, central to the rest of the book of Mark and what he's going to be going through. So I want to make sure that we have a, a firm grasp on that. Um, and throughout our, our study, throughout our lesson today, feel free to, to ask any questions about those or to uh, make any comments on those because those are indeed foundational to what Mark is going to be going through. All right. Well, in these next verses, we're going to see how far we get today, but we're going to start off in verse 14. We're going to be talking about Jesus beginning his public ministry. We just got through talking about his baptism and his temptation in the wilderness for 40 days. And now he's going to set out and he's going to begin his, his public ministry. Um, we want to note first, however, that Mark skips over Jesus' ministry in Judea and in Jerusalem. So verse 14, um, where Mark jumps in, just says, Now after John had been taken into custody, uh, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. 
So that's right on the heels of the temptation. And he just uh, kind of says without much explanation that John the Baptist had been taken into custody. And he'll go back and cover that a little bit more in chapter 6. But for now, he's just glancing over that and saying it's after his um, imprisonment that Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Now, remember that we have four different gospel writers with four different audiences, four different purposes in writing. And Mark, for uh, his intended purposes, chooses to start here at Galilee, but he's jumping over several different um, ministries of, of Jesus, um, several months, in fact, almost up to a year of his ministry. So if you take a look at this map, I'm not sure how well you can see that from there, but at the bottom we have the, the Dead Sea, and down there in that region, that's Judea. And then up towards the top, that smaller like that's the, the Sea of Galilee. And here I'll, I'll zoom in for us a little bit right there. So up in the, the Galilean region, that's where he's beginning his, that's where Mark is beginning the account of Jesus' ministry. And um, he's skipping over several chapters that, that John touches on. Remember in John chapter 2, he touches on the, the first miracle of Jesus, turning water into wine at, at Cana. You guys can see Cana right there next to Galilee, in the Galilee region. And then he, he goes down to Jerusalem. That's also the same chapter in John 2 where Jesus goes in, he cleanses out uh, the temple. And he's, he's turning tables over and, and kicking people out and giving them what for. Uh, Mark doesn't touch on that at all. And then John chapter 4, that's where, uh, let's actually, I'll read John 4. Um, it says in verse 3, that he left Judea and he went away into Galilee. So he was down in Judea, going back up into Galilee. And then verse 4 says, and he had to pass through Samaria. So that's when he passes through Samaria. He sees the, um, the Samaritan woman. And they have their, their discussion about her five past husbands and the one she's with now is not her husband. Um, so this is a, a lot of ministry, a big chunk of time that Mark is skipping over, and he's starting with Jesus going back up into Galilee from Judea. Um, that's where Mark is picking up here in Mark uh, 1.14. And we also see that Jesus here is preaching the gospel of God. That is what he's doing in Galilee. Again, verse 14, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. I listed several verse references there for you. We're not going to look at any of those right now, but if you want to, you can jot those down in your notes. Uh, I just wanted to show you that that term, gospel of God, is a, a common term. It's not uncommon for, uh, for Scripture to use that term. And we should understand that this isn't a, a reference to the gospel as you and I would speak about the gospel today. When you and I are summarize, summarizing the gospel we would likely go to 1 Corinthians 15 and talk about how Jesus was um, crucified for, for our sins according to the scripture, that he was um, buried and rose again the third day according to the scripture. We would summarize that and say, well, that is what the gospel is. But clearly this is prior to any of that going on. This is while Jesus is beginning his ministry, or, or rather several months, a year into his ministry. But he's not yet gone to the cross. He's not yet raised himself from the dead or ascended into heaven. And so when Jesus is speaking about the, the gospel of God here in Mark 1, 
we should understand this not so much in the same way that you and I understand it, but rather as um, a, a reference to the kingdom of God. And we'll get into that here in just a moment. But before we do, I have to point out the fact that Jesus here is, is preaching the gospel of God. That is the, the means, the, the medium that God is using to get this message out into the world. It's Jesus preaching. That's the same means that God uses to speak to people today. And when we, we hear that word preaching, we can think of somebody standing behind a pulpit and uh, preaching a sermon, but really it's a proclamation of the truth, something that we're all commanded to do. We're commanded to, to go out and to preach to, to all nations, to every creature, right? Um, Jesus was here practicing that same means, that same medium for spreading the truth of his word. And I think we can have a tendency to, to look at Jesus and we can think of him as a, a miracle worker, which he was, right? As a, a prophet of God, as a, a leader of a movement or a, a group of people. But first and foremost, Jesus was a, a preacher. He was a teacher. That was his, his main focus, his primary ministry. And we'll get that to that here in a, a few weeks. Jesus says that uh, he came to preach. That is his primary focus. People were asking him, to, to come and heal other people, to cast out demons. And Jesus says, no, I'm, I'm here to preach. That is his main responsibility, his main priority. So we need to recognize that, I think, first and foremost, Jesus was a, a preacher. And then, as I said, the, the gospel here, speaking about the gospel of God, that should be understood as the good news of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, which is at hand, which is um, there. So... We shouldn't, again, think of 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel, how we think of it, but that the gospel is, is here, it's on the scene, um, beginning to unfold. Any thoughts or questions on Jesus preaching in Galilee, the gospel of God? All right. Again, we're not going to go over any of those verses there. Just put those there if you want to jot those down real quick. And then we're going to go on. We're going to talk about the, the kingdom of God, which is a, a huge subject. We could really spend an entire class talking about the kingdom of God. That'd be a good series to go through, and perhaps we'll do that someday. But we'll just give a, an introductory uh, teaching on what the gospel, or the kingdom of God is, rather. Um, which is synonymous with the kingdom of heaven in, in Matthew's gospel. Those are the same thing. We should understand them in the same way. And we will again see the, the gospel or the kingdom of God referenced throughout the, the rest of Mark. So I know you guys are still jotting stuff down, but I'm going to go to the next slide and we're going to talk a little bit about the, the kingdom of God. And so in the, the Old Testament, it prophesize about the, the kingdom of God. This is something that isn't a, a surprise to the Jewish people that Matthew is writing to. Um, remember that the, the Roman people that, that March writing to, the Gentiles that Luke is writing to, um, they all can look back and see that the kingdom has a, a foundation in the Old Testament. It's not some new teaching, some new doctrine, but Mark and, and Luke are both saying, look, this is an established truth that has been given by, by Yahweh in the Old Testament, not something that's new, um, just barely coming on the scene. So the Old Testament speaks of a coming messianic kingdom. And I'm going to go ahead and I'll read 2 Samuel 7 for us. 
uh, Jerry, I thought you might enjoy reading Jeremiah 23, if you wouldn't mind doing that for us. And then I'll let the, the rest of you guys race and, and fight over who gets to read Micah 4, 6 through 7. But while I'm reading uh, 2 Samuel 7, well, first I need to get there. But while I'm reading that, I want us to pay attention to the, the time references that are used in this passage. This is where uh, David is told that he's going to, to be king. Uh, this is where we see the, the Davidic covenant laid out. So 2 Samuel 7, I'm going to start in verse 8. It says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendants after you. Who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the strokes of the son of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and, and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. So David is told that his descendant Solomon is going to raise up and he's going to uh, be king after him. And it speaks of his iniquity. So we know that it's speaking of his direct descendant Solomon and how God is going to correct him and how the, the throne is not going to depart from him. And then look at verse 16. It says, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me. And in case that's not enough, that it's going to endure, it's not going to pass away, it says forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Uh, David is going to have a descendant who is on the throne forever, right? For eternity. So that specific aspect of that time, that is important, how God is has made this promise to his people, his chosen people, that they're going to have a king forever, um, which is, it ties in with the kingdom of God, which we're reading about in, in Mark chapter 1. Uh, Jerry, do you have Jeremiah 23, 5 through 8 for us? Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they will no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt. But, as the Lord lives, who brought up and led back the descendants of the household of Israel, 
from the north land and from all of the countries where I had driven them. Then they will live on their own soil. Amen. All right. So there, Jeremiah is prophesying a time when Israel will live in peace. You guys been watching the news at all lately? Um, Israel is not living in a time of peace, right? And there was a, a time when they lived in peace from the, the Assyrians and from the Babylonians, but that was a, a limited time and a limited peace. And this speaks of a time when they're going to return to their own soil where they're going to have peace. And this is an eternal peace, a forever peace, a peace that isn't going to be just temporary, a peace that isn't going to be stripped away from them in the future. Um, this is a, a time when they're going to be the established kingdom um, on the world. And Micah 4, 6 through 7. Who's got that one for us? All right, Mike. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the, and the lame I will make permanent, and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from the time forth and forevermore. All right. Again, you guys catch that reference to time that we see there? That the Lord will reign over them in Zion from that time forth and forevermore. It's going to be an eternal reigning, an eternal kingdom, right? We have to understand that this was the, the Old Testament understanding of the, the coming prophetic messianic kingdom, that he was going to come, he was going to reign. It was a real literal reigning, a real, real literal kingdom, and it was going to be a, a forever type of kingdom. Now, let me just ask you guys, what do you guys picture and envision when you think of a, a kingdom? King. A king? Yes, that is a vital aspect of having a kingdom. You need to have a king, right? What else? Yes, rule and power and sovereignty, right? Good. All right. Well, I think when, when I think of a, a kingdom, I think in, in those kind of physical terms, right? There's a, a king who is sitting on a throne. He is ruling. He has complete authority. Everybody is, is listening. They're bowing the knee to him. They're recognizing that he is sovereign and acknowledging that, that sovereignty and that power, that authority um, in their submission to him. Well, last week we talked about the hypostatic union, right? That Jesus is truly God and truly man. Um, one way to, one, one phrase that I find helpful in understanding that is that um, God didn't lay aside any of his attributes, right? A lot of people make that mistake and say, well, how can, how can God be a man without shedding some of his godness, without um, taking away some of that, that nature of God? Well, um, the phrase subtraction by addition is, is helpful to me, that Jesus added to his divine nature the human nature. He added something that was inferior to his nature. And again, that doesn't mean that he set aside any of his attributes, that he took aside any of his, his godness, which is a, a pretty major belief, a, a popular belief, I think a vastly uh, misunderstood belief. 
Um, I want to, let's turn together actually to Philippians. This is where this belief comes from and I think it's good that we have a, a correct understanding of this in Philippians, I'm gonna actually start in Philippians two verse three. This is Paul writing to this church at Philippi and he is commending them in verse three to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Don't be selfish, don't just think about yourself, but instead with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That's what he wants them to do, to be selfless rather than selfish. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then he's going to use Jesus as an example. Starting in verse eight, he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God. Jesus was God, right? He existed in the form of God, and yet he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So a lot of people look at verse 7, at that word for, for emptied, uh, kenosis, and they'll say, well, Jesus, he, he laid aside his omniscience, his omnipotence, his, um, his sovereignty, all these different aspects, that, um, these attributes that make him God. If Jesus were to have laid aside those attributes, then he would not be truly God. So for him to be both truly God and truly man, we, we can't take that understanding and, and run with it. We have to denounce that, that teaching. But instead, what Jesus emptied himself of was his, his glory, of his position. He humbled himself. That's the whole point that Paul's trying to get across to the Philippians, right? You guys shouldn't be selfish. You guys need to be selfless. Consider others as more important than yourselves, just like Jesus did, who, being God, he didn't come down here. He wasn't floating. He wasn't shining. Uh, he didn't have a, a, a throne and a scepter. He set that aside, and he humbled himself, even to the point of death, death on a cross. That is what uh, they, as the Philippians, should do in light of what Jesus did in, in humbling himself. So, for, um, for our purposes in, in Mark, remember our, our key verse in, in Mark, Mark 10, 45? You guys remember that verse? All right, let's, let's work on remembering that verse. It's a good verse to remember, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and he gave his life as a ransom for many. That was his purpose, not to be served as king, but to serve. Um, he is a, a suffering servant, right? That's what Mark's trying to get across, what he's trying to convey. So in, um, in this humility, in setting aside his glory, not his attributes, not his deity, but in set aside, setting aside his glory, does that mean that Jesus was not king during his incarnation? He absolutely was. All right. Yeah, I see. See, Andy shaking his head. No, that's not what that means. Jerry says he absolutely was and is king, right? That is good. Uh, even Kanye realizes that Jesus is king, right? Um, no idea where he's at, but uh, Jesus is king. And we have to realize that, that he was king before creation. He was king as he was speaking into creation, the creation itself, um, we, 
We see in the, the Old Testament that he was king of kings and lord of lords, that Israel, they asked for another king, and God says, you know what, I'm, I'm your king, and that should be sufficient. But I'll go ahead and I'll give you what you want. If you guys want to enslave yourselves to those around you, that's fine. Uh, and at his incarnation, Jesus was still king. The Magi recognized and, and realized that. They came to him with gifts, honoring and worshiping him as king. And uh, all throughout his, his ministry, up to his point on the cross, Jesus was still king. He is still king today. So we have to recognize that while he did not establish a, a kingdom on earth, he was no less king at that point. He was still uh, king, even though he didn't have a, a throne. He, even though he wasn't reigning in what I think of as a, a kingdom where he's exercising his power and dominion and domain over uh, his subjects. Yes, Joseph. Now that I think of it, didn't Jesus tell Pilate that he was a king too? Mm-hmm. Yep. Good. All right, so uh, these passages that we just looked at, 2 Samuel, Jeremiah, Micah, uh, along with many others, they speak of a future physical reign of Jesus, that Jesus is going to reign in that uh, typical sense that we think of as uh, a reigning king, reigning over a kingdom. Um, we see this most clearly in Revelation 19 and 20, that Jesus is going to come back, he's going to establish this kingdom, he's going to reign for a thousand years. Um, but we even see that um, here in Mark. And I want to look at these couple of references in Mark. Um, in Mark 10, 37. I'm bouncing back and forth here a little bit. But Mark 10, 37. And there it says, um, we can see a, a recognition of the fact that this is a, a physical kingdom that Jesus um, is going to establish. They said to him, Grant that we may sit on your right hand and on your left in your glory. So they realize, just as the Old Testament realized, that Jesus is going to establish a real physical kingdom. Uh, over in chapter 15, verse 43, it says there that Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was writing for the kingdom. He was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and he went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. But he was waiting for this real physical kingdom of God to be established. That was the, the first century understanding that um, in line with the, the, the prophets of the Old Testament, that Jesus was going to establish a real and physical kingdom. Um, we see that even in spite of that, Jesus spoke of the kingdom as being at hand. That's what we, we see in, in and, and throughout Mark, um, that he was preaching this gospel of God. Um, this is Mark 1, 15. He was saying that the time is fulfilled, that the kingdom of God is at hand. He's saying, even though he hasn't established a, a throne, even though he doesn't have a, a scepter in his hand, even though he isn't ruling in this real physical sense. Remember, we just jumped to the end of the book in chapter 15, Joseph of Arimathea, he's still waiting for this kingdom after Jesus had died. And Jesus here in chapter one, he's saying, well, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so we have to reconcile these things here. Um, could I get somebody to look up those two passages there in yellow, First Timothy and, and Zechariah? And while you guys are, are headed there, I'm going to go ahead and read Ephesians for us. 
and see if we can uh, get these, these two different thoughts and uh, bring them together, that Jesus' kingdom is at hand, and yet uh, it's a, a future kingdom we're still reading about in Revelation 19 and 20 is not being fully established yet. So Ephesians 1.18 says, in Paul writing, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every other name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so we see that uh, Jesus is, is reigning and he is ruling even now. Um, all things have been subjected to him. Uh, he is in authority over all things in a, a real yet a spiritual sense. Um, he is leading and guiding his subjects. His subjects being the church, right? You and I, who have bowed the knee to Jesus, we recognize him as king. Um, I ask you, does that mean that Jesus is not king today? And you guys say, well, absolutely, Jesus is the king. And you say that because you are part of his church. You are part of his body. You are his people who have submitted yourselves to him as his subjects, recognizing that he is indeed king. And Jesus will come back with his church one day, and he will establish his equally real um, yet future physical kingdom of God in, in the future. First uh, Timothy six thirteen through 15. Who's got that for us? All right, Joseph. Uh, it says, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment which are without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. All right. So we see in that passage, Jesus is telling them, you need to keep his commandments because you are his subjects, because you recognize him as king. His commandments, they are our gold, right? You need to submit yourselves to them. And yet, in the very next breath, he's saying that he is going to come back and he is going to establish his king with all rule and power and authority in a real physical sense, not just over the church, but over the whole entire earth. And at that point, everybody will realize that he is king. Uh, Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. Who's got that for us? Mike. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation as he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coal, a coal of donkey. All right. And so we see uh, both aspects there, right? That he is coming in his humility, and yet he is going to be coming in, in power and reign in the future. And then uh, Luke 9.11. Luke 9.10 is a good verse. And the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost, right? That's right in line with Mark's purpose. But in the very next verse, Luke 19.11, says, While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. 
Well, Jesus was telling them this parable to let them know that his kingdom, his real physical kingdom over all the earth is not going to appear immediately. That is going to come later. And yet, Jesus is king, right? His kingdom is a, a spiritual kingdom over his church, his, his spiritual realm. We see in um, John 18.36, um, I think what Joseph was referencing before, that Jesus says, my kingdom, recognizing that he is a king, that he has a kingdom, it is not of this world, right? Just as you and I are not of this world, this world is not our, own, our home, but we are sojourners. Uh, we are living in this, this tent, this temporary body. Um, our, our real home is in the heavenlies, seated at, at, with Christ in the heavenlies. Um, that is not our, our home. And let's go back to Philippians 2, that same passage where we were talking about Jesus laying aside his, um, not attributes, but his glory, right? Uh, he emptied himself of his right to rule and to reign. He became a, a servant. Uh, let's pick up in verse 9. We see there, it says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, uh, Jesus is going to rule and reign in a very real physical sense. And in that day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, not just in heaven, not just on earth, but under the earth. Everybody's going to realize Jesus is king, along with his church, who right now realizes that Jesus is reigning and ruling in a spiritual sense. So, Again, the, the kingdom of God, it is a, a huge topic that we could spend a ton of time on. But um, Jesus is ruling right now in a real spiritual sense. He is going to rule in the future in a real physical sense. You can read Revelation 19.20 for that. You can read Revelation 21 to see how Jesus is going to rule and reign as king in his kingdom for all of eternity. In the new heavens and new earth. First uh, Corinthians 15 is going to talk about how uh, he is going to um, turn that, that kingdom over to the Father so that God may be all in all. Um, that is, again, a very, very fast overview of the kingdom of God, this very rich, in-depth topic. A uh, couple, couple other verses for us to consider. Uh, Luke 17:21 says, Nor will they say, Look, there he, here he is, or there he is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's here now, right? And yet, it will be established in the future. So there's an, an already not yet aspect that his kingdom has already been established in a spiritual sense, and yet has not yet been established in a physical sense. Uh, we see the same thing in Colossians 1.13, which says that he rescued us from the domain of darkness, the spiritual domain of darkness, that we were children of wrath, enemies of God even as a rest. And he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. So he has a kingdom and he is ruling and reigning over the church right now. So, any thoughts or questions on that very big, rich topic that we've just barely skimmed the surface of? Um, yeah, don't the uh, most millennial people believe that he is ruling right now? Yeah, there, there are several different views and understandings of the millennium. 
um, starting next month in, well not next month, in January on Wednesdays, we're gonna be going over different views and perspectives on the millennium um, and our church's position on the millennium and um, not just that, but our, our hermeneutic, how we should read and understand the Bible, why it is that we think that there is a literal thousand year reign, which is future. But yes, there are people who think that we are in the millennium right now, that the millennium isn't a literal thousand year reign, it's just a, a really long time. There are people that think that we as a church are going to usher in the kingdom, um, that the world is gonna get better and better. Um, there are several different views and opinions that we don't hold to. And if you want more information on that, I think it would be good if you could make it to the, the Wednesday night starting in January. And we'll, we'll talk about the differences and, and there are big differences, foundational differences that um, will land you in completely different uh, understandings of what the Bible says. Yes, Amy. So a new thing that I had not heard until recently was the idea that um, Jesus could have reigned from then, from when he was here, like part of the plan was that the Jewish people would start the reign at that point, but the Jewish people didn't accept him. Uh, to me, that's like, well, then he wouldn't have died for our sins either. Yeah. So, I don't know. That was just, yeah, he, there he, are some weird things out there. I don't know. He had to make propitiation for our sins, right? A, a satisfactory payment. Uh, you can look in, in Hebrews that... Um, the, the blood of goats and bulls, that's not satisfactory. That's just a, a temporary covering that priests would come in and they would make a sacrifice first for themselves and then for the people. And they had to do this year over year, year after year after year. But Jesus came and he made the, the perfect sacrifice, which is good for, for all perpetuity. And that, that blood of the lamb, that is sufficient to pay it for our sins. But his disciples at the time, they were thinking he's here to rule and reign now. Yeah. That was part of their whole confusion of why are we not ruling and reigning now? Yeah, yeah it was, um, it's hard to, to fault them for that because the passages in the Old Testament, you'll see side by side, just as we did in, in Zechariah 9, passages that talk about him coming and ruling and reigning, and yet passages that talk about him coming in humility um, to, to serve. Um, and it was a, a mystery that wasn't revealed to them in the Old Testament. Uh, that's another aspect. That's what we're actually going to start with, I think. Our, our first lesson in January, we're going to talk about progressive revelation and how God has slowly revealed more and more truth to his people. Uh, we have a lot more light, a lot more truth and information than uh, Abraham or Moses, right? God gave them information, and it was good, and it was true information. It was information that he's not going to, to take back. He's not going to change. He can't um, rewrite his, his covenantal promises to Abraham, for instance. Um, he is he's God. He is sworn by himself, by two unchangeable things. And the fact that he is God and he is sworn by himself, he has given us his word. And so those things will come to pass, but he has given us more revelation as time has passed so that we know um, more than they did in the Old Testament. And, um, he knew, I, but they didn't. Yes. Yeah, so he's slowly revealing that to his people throughout time. Jerry. Well, plus, he was there with them, doing the amazing miracles, creating food. Yes. So I mean, obviously, we cannot fault them for thinking that any more than we can fault our brothers who want to confuse those things. But I like to think of it as, I remember, in first grade, uh, 
how awesome it was to understand addition and subtraction. Mm -hmm. And yet, I never learned calculus, so I can't do the calculations to you know how strong I need to make the wing on my airplane. Somebody with more revelation needs yep. to teach that, and yet one and one is no equals two. It doesn't change. Amen. We think we should know what God knows and just can't accept what He says. It's very frustrating to me. Yes. You can't discount addition and subtraction when it comes to calculus or, or trigonometry. Those foundational aspects have to remain the same. And um, even though you, you add more to it, it doesn't change the, the foundations, right? At least that's the way I understand. Yeah. All right. These are good questions. Uh, we're veering off of the topic of the, the kingdom just a little bit, which is fine. But uh, just to get back to the kingdom, any other thoughts or questions on the kingdom? Yes. Well, it's unfortunate, I think, for us Americans, we Americans, to not have lived under British rule or, or um, monarchy, or you know, where the king was sovereign. No, there was no judge, there was no court, there was no law that could supersede him. Yes. That could say, what are you doing? That was very, very real. Yep. Had, Without checks and balances, uh, he is yes. king, right? Kill anybody that picked him off without any repercussions whatsoever. Mm -hmm. and we totally miss that, and we think we are so powerful. But we don't have a real comprehension of true sovereignty. Amen. We also, in, in that same issue there, we, we kind of become the idea of having a king comes completely abhorrent to us, like, yes. oh, but yeah. us, we have freedoms and we can criticize our government and, you know, we can wear hats that say we don't like our president or whatever. Um, we, we have this idea and it's, it's not conducive to how it's going to be when Christ comes back. Or how we are before God right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, we take the Bible and say whatever we want about it. His words and his word is law and absolute. Yeah. All right. Well, that's how quickly we forget. Yes. I mean, not that we want to, you know, give up our, our checks and balances and our, our government <laughs> system, though. Because <laughs> yeah, any man is a, a fallible man, right? So to give him absolute sovereign authority as, as God has, that's probably not the best idea, right? Uh, but that does give us a, a good picture of. God's absolute sovereign authority. Plus, the other part of that is, depending on how you read this, how much authority the church has and how much authority the leaders in the church have, it quickly can go to, to a place where we tend to forget that these are all men and sinful men at that. Amen. Good reminder. Not referring to you. <laughs> I am a sinful man. Sinful, fallible man. We need to keep that in mind. All right, good. So we need to uh, remember that when talking about the, the kingdom of God, that it is a real kingdom that is at hand. Jesus being king, he is here and saying, 
this kingdom is established, it is at hand, and yet there is going to be a future sense in which everybody is going to be subject, subject to him. All right, let's keep moving on. We are certainly not going to make it through all of our lesson today, which is fine. Uh, we will get there next week, but let's see how far we make it. So back in uh, verse 15 of Mark chapter 1, um, Jesus came preaching the gospel of God, which is, I think, synonymous with the kingdom of God, saying the time is fulfilled. The, the fullness of the time has come, right? Jesus came born of a woman, born under the law. Uh, it is time for his um, spiritual kingdom to, to be established. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then his uh, command there is to repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus preaches repentance and belief. Now, we've talked about repentance before and how repentance and belief are, in fact, two sides of the same coin, and yet they are not synonymous. Um, I think a, a lot of people will say that repentance is just belief. Um, they're, they're related, they're tied in together, but there is more to repentance than just belief. Jesus here isn't preaching belief and belief, right? That's redundant. Um, he is preaching more than that. In James 2.19, it says, even the demons believe and shudder. And we'll see that later in, uh, not this lesson, but later in this passage, probably next week, we'll look at Jesus' authority over demons and how uh, this demon cried out and said, Jesus, wh what are you doing? What do, I, what do you have to do with me? What do, I have to do, what do we have to do with each other? Um, because he shuddered at the, the authority of God because he believed in him but it's just an, an intellectual belief. So again, repentance is a, a change of mind resulting in a change of behavior, and it entails uh, an aspect of submission, an aspect of surrender to God, which the demons have not done. So just uh, a simple belief is not equivalent with repentance. Um, it's not faith plus works, but it's a, a faith that does work, so it produces results. Um, a faith that is born out of a, a truly repentant heart that is saving faith. That every good tree will bear good fruit. And again, we have to remember that repentance is not something that we, we come up within ourselves. It's a, a gift from God. We looked several weeks ago at Acts 5.31, which says that God grants repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Or in Acts 11.18, that God grants this repentance not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles also. Second uh, Timothy 2.25, another verse that talks about how God is the one who grants repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. This repentance is distinct from belief, um, and it's a, a gift from God. And Jesus came preaching belief and repentance, just as John the Baptist was preaching repentance, right? The, the message hasn't changed, just... Um, it's the, the messenger now who has changed. John, who was a forerunner, pointed and said, uh, look at Jesus, the Lamb of God. He's the one who's going to come. He's going to baptize you with, with water and with fire. He's the one who you need to look to uh, to realize this, this truth of repentance. Any other questions or thoughts on repentance, on this message that both John and Jesus came preaching? Yes. Um, so, uh, last Sunday, Jeremy was, was talking, and when he mentioned repentance, he did mention it as a, a turning, and then I went over to the, what was it, the Blue Letter Bible app, and it, it, it backed that up. I think it was an Old Testament passage that he was in. Mm -hmm. um, so, is it, 
like I'm just trying to figure out how to take these two ideas yes. and and kind of either reconcile them or, or whatever the case needs to be there. But like, how do we understand? Because a lot of folks will say a turning, mm -hmm. and so how are we supposed to understand this turning? I'm assuming it's not like, you know, I'm I, going to work for repentance, but. I think it's more difficult for people like, like you and me, like probably most of us who have grown up in Utah with a different understanding of repentance, like we talked about several weeks ago, where their understanding of, of turning means to, to stop sinning. To forsake your sin means to, to stop sinning, to, um, to put all that aside, and then you can come to Christ. That is absolutely not what repentance means, um, even though you can look at the, the Old Testament, and um, I think even built in with built within that uh, that word is an aspect of, of turning, an aspect even of, of sorrow over your sin. And yet, um, it's a, as we mentioned, it's a, a change of mind. So it's not to cease from sinning, but to turn from, okay, I'm going to be my own master. I'm going to be my own Lord. I'm going to embrace my sin. I'm going to love my sin. And you turn from that and you say, you have this change of mind. Um, Meta is, is after, noia is, is mind. So you have this thought that comes into your mind and then um, it's gonna change your mind after the fact. And you're going to have this other understanding that no, Jesus is king, I need to submit myself to him. I need to uh, turn from my sin in, in my love for my sin and um, embrace instead Jesus. Not that we're going to, to stop sinning. Um, let me see here. Looking in, I'm looking in the right spot. 2 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 8 says, For though I, this is uh, Paul writing to the Corinthian church, and he's referencing a, another letter that I don't think that we have, a, a harsh letter that he has written to them. He says, For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow though only for a little while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. So we see there that there is a sorrow that leads to repentance. So um, turning from this understanding, changing your mind, um, being sorrow or repentant about your sin. Uh, Matthew 5, 3, which says um, that the, the kingdom of God belongs to those who are um, poor in spirit, who are, are begging and realizing their need for God. I think all of these aspects point to a legitimate repentance or a godly repentance rather than just a sorrow of um, I got caught or I got busted or um, I'm, I'm not happy with the, the results of that sin. A true repentance has built within it this, this sorrow, this turning, this change of mind, um, which doesn't necessitate for us to, to cease our sinning before we come to God. First uh, John 1, 8 through 10 says, if we say that we have not sinned, then we're a liar and truth is not within us. Uh, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we say that we have no sin, then we make God a liar. So it's not, uh, it's not saying that we have achieved sinless perfection. Any other 
thoughts on repentance or um, yet yeah, it's hard to, to articulate those differences but um, if we yes. keep the kingdom in mind we need as our own authority our own king hmm. we worship ourselves in yes. fact so this change of mind means you're acknowledging the rule of another over us mm-hmm. have to respond to that thought when you get that you get mad and continue fighting mm-hmm. you can submit I, I think there was a, an attempt of Charles Dickens in the Prince and the Pauper where he tries to show that the kid once he left the palace and then his father dies and it's, he's king but he's still out there in rags mm-hmm. and, and when people realize that you know, he tries to pres- that, that, that's kind of the picture I think he's trying to pre- present that when you realize who the king is even though you don't recognize him by his appearance and his army behind him you still submit to it mm-hmm. and you our song says, you count on his mercy. As Bartimaeus did he. So, so yeah, it's all those things together. We try so hard to analyze every little detail, but just the fact is, are we, are we submitting to the real king? Are we yes. acknowledging some other king, whether it's ourselves yep. or some other that we prefer? So turning from that idea of ourselves as king to Jesus as king, but without that being a, a work that is right. necessary for salvation. Has to follow that. It, it doesn't happen. You don't earn the right to be his subject. Yep. You already are his subject. Mm-hmm. And that's why I pointed out those verses in Acts 5 and 11 and 2 Timothy 2, 25, that this has to be granted to us. It's not something we do in and of ourselves. Amy. Um, Romans 2, 4, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. So recognizing him for who he is mm-hmm. is, what, is part of what changes us. He changes us. Yep. Amen. Absolutely. Yeah, again, I think it's just the, the world's taking that term and, and using it in a, a perverted way that kind of messes with our understanding of repentance. Um, it's not anything that we do. It's nothing that um, we have to do in and of ourselves in order to merit the, the grace of God, but it's something that he gifts to us as a part of his saving work within his people. All right. Well, we made it a few verses. We'll get the rest next week. I had ambitious plans to make it to 28, but we will get there eventually for sure. All right, let's pray and we will fellowship and worship some more. God, we do thank you for your repentance, that your repentance is something you have granted to us. We pray along with Paul in in 2 Timothy 2.25 that you would grant that repentance to others, that they might see you, that they might uh, turn from their their false understanding that their sin is okay, that it's not an issue, turn from 
uh, worshiping themselves or, or other things in this world to, to worshiping you as one true God. God, we thank you that you are our king, that you are ruling and reigning over your church today, that you will come back and establish your kingdom on this earth, that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that you and you alone are Lord. God, help us to have boldness in proclaiming that truth to a, a lost and dying world, a, a crooked and depraved universe that they might turn to you and embrace you as king now while they still can, uh, knowing that one day uh, it is appointed unto man to, to die and then to be judged. God, we pray that uh, you would redeem them and, and save them, grant them that repentance now, um, that today would be the day of salvation for many who are lost and dying in a, a world without you. God, we pray that you would bless our time of uh, fellowship and uh, worship of you. God, speak to our hearts today. Pray again for those who aren't with us, that you would bless them. And uh, God, we, we pray that you would be set apart as Lord in our heart, as King of the universe. And uh, we love you and praise you. Amen.